0: Listening to the Anagram Journey with Suzanne Stabile, and this week you are listening to Suzanne and the Reverend Joseph Stabile. It's a cool podcast episode because it is actually the beginning of a workshop that they led: spiritual practices and the anagram. There's so much gold in this first hour. I'm not even going to try to narrow it down for a summary. Please enjoy, and the workshop in its entirety will be available on the Life in the Trinity Ministry website and at SuzanneStabile.com on Monday, July 15th. Quick reminder for upcoming events, Suzanne is going to be in Jackson for the Mississippi Book Festival in August. Suzanne and the Reverend are in Los Angeles teaching Centering Prayer and Enneagram Stances in September. Then later in the month, Suzanne is teaching her world-famous Know Your Number workshop in Minneapolis. On October 19th, I said the date wrong on the last podcast, but October 19th, Suzanne has her new incredible Four Mantras, Relationships, and the Enneagram event in Dallas. And that day is going to be incredible. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and I definitely hope that we could see you at an upcoming event.
1: I have a chance later to talk more about myself and introduce myself more uh, to you all. Uh, I think many of you are already very, very familiar with Suzanne from her work either where you've attended a workshop or you've listened to the Enneagram Journey series, the DVDs, or you've read her books. Uh, Suzanne, it, I believe, is just an incredible Enneagram teacher and uh, has taken the Enneagram to new depths in terms of self-understanding and, and personal growth. So um, I'm thrilled and delighted that you have had that background and that wisdom. Suzanne's going to teach this morning. I'm going to teach this afternoon. We're going to put some time in together towards the end of the day.
2: Thank you so much for, in the best of circumstances or the worst of circumstances, making your way to here for wanting to know what we have to share together about the Enneagram and spiritual practice for any Enneagram work you've done and the representation of that in a world where Enneagram conversation is very trendy, not generally fully informed, um, and there's two sides to everything. And so it's good that it's trendy, and um, I'm going to te- keep trying to get everybody to dive just a little bit deeper and then a little bit deeper because it has the potential to be so much more than a test or uh, figuring out your number, um, et cetera. When I, uh, turned 30, I realized that I actually had not done much spiritual work. I was a church goer and I was a youth pastor when I was in college and I was all about church. But I, I don't think in our denomination in the six fifties and sixties, maybe there was, um, a sense that we needed to maybe grow our souls or even that we could. I grew up pretty much thinking that it was possible for you to mess things up in terms of the goodness of you, but I didn't know that you could have some effect on the essence of who you are by doing the kind of work that is now called soul work. And when I found that out, um, I, I had just turned 30 and I, Try to mark that anniversary every year by adding a new spiritual practice. And I don't know what your spiritual practice is, and I don't know how long since you've added a new spiritual practice or if you have one, but I think collectively we have something to share with you that might challenge uh, what kind of practice you have, how often you change that practice, and whether or not it comforts you or stretches you. And I think you need both. Uh, but I think we tend to go with a spiritual practice that suits our Enneagram personality. And in that decision, then stay pretty static in terms of spiritual growth. So let me talk a little bit about growth and transformation. Joe and I believe that spiritual growth happens when you take on something new. But spiritual transformation occurs when something old falls away usually beyond your control so you know how you've read a book and you've thought this book changed my life like probably the road back to you and the path between us would, yeah. <laughs> and then just a few days or a few weeks or a couple of months later you think now what what was the name of that book or you see a movie uh you know i um i've been on airplanes since january 3rd i think And everybody tells you what movie to watch. So since I'm on airplanes all the time, I just dial in a movie. And there are movies that people rave about as being a game changer in their lives. And I watch them and think, hmm. And there are others that I haven't heard anybody talk about that I watched. And they were very meaningful for me. So I I think we have to be mindful of the fact that transformation occurs when things are out of your control. But if you're not uh, spiritually suited to deal with things that are defying your illusion of control, then we tend to just add and add and add and add. I um, learned from Joe, and I'm I'm a staunch believer, that there is one spiritual practice that we all have to do and that we have to do it every day, and that centering prayer. And the reason I think that's so essential is because it's the only spiritual practice I know that empties you enough so that you can take in new information, new practices, new ways of seeing, new ways of understanding. And Joe will tell you much more about that later, but I just want to start with, I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of people about Centering prayer, and I know that there's a lot of pushback, and I can generally tell you which numbers push back and which numbers really like it. And all I can say is, he says, and he's my guru, he says, the only thing you can do wrong with centering prayer is not show up. So before I start talking about your personality, I want to encourage you from my perspective to show up every day as close to the same time as you can, and work yourself to a 20-minute sit. And if you're like me and you're feisty and you tend to get a little whipped up during the day, then you might need to do another one at 4.30. <laughs> I sometimes do. And it actually saves us a lot of trouble when I do too, doesn't it, baby? So I'm sure as you are living your lives, there are um, changes that you have to accommodate. The question in terms of a spiritual journey is how do you accommodate them? So I'm going to do a little bit of a review in terms of anagram wisdom, and then I'm ultimately going to talk about each number, and I hope it's going to be really helpful. Richard Roy says, when change comes, we have no choice but to accommodate it. To do otherwise, he says, is death in one way or another. And Joe and I have a good spiritual director and people around us who challenge us to not reduce our lives but expand them as change comes. And I'm just going to tell you, there is no change that I've experienced with loss or trauma or whatever that compares to the changes that come with aging and whether or not you do that gracefully. So what we've committed to and what we've begun to do is we, we think that because of uh, excess personality, lots of people in our generation, which is the baby boomer generation, are unwilling to find a new call for their lives that accommodates all the experiences and all of the history that they have on board. So we don't sit on boards anymore because we think 40-somethings need to be sitting on boards, not us. And we don't do any work anymore that doesn't involve us teaching what we know to younger people because our context is different from the context of our children who range in age from 31 to 41. But what happens is, as you age, we find, you tend to minimize the best parts of you and call it taking care of yourself and miss the third third of life where you have really important things to offer that you can't offer if you're operating in excess in your number. So let's start with this overview. In your Enneagram number, at any time, you can be healthy or average or unhealthy or in excess in your number or pathological. And when you're in excess in your number, it always has to do with the fact that you're not balanced in terms of thinking and feeling and doing. And so that is stance work essentially. And if people don't know that they're using two of three centers of intelligence, then they don't know what to do to change that pattern of behavior. And so, whereas people who are on a spiritual journey generally live in the bottom half of healthy and the top half of average, as life changes for them and transitions are required, they tend to fall down here and allow their personality to be big like it was when they were 18 or 19 or 20, which would mean you would be extra fearful or you would be extra concerned about what other people think or you would be committed to protecting this energy that you have if you're a five or in excess in your number, you wouldn't risk conflict if you were a nine. Our understanding after some time is that that's all a mistake because that keeps you down here instead of setting the table for you to give what you have to give and to live in a different kind of freedom up here. So that's my understanding of a translation of Richard talking about it is to choose death in one way or another. So on this journey, I've, I've learned uh, several things, some of which are particularly important today. And the first is there are spiritual practices and spiritual disciplines that can free a person's soul when they're practiced well. And a free soul can take new steps toward personal and spiritual transformation. For so long, I didn't know my soul wasn't free. I didn't know it wasn't growing. I didn't know it wasn't strong. And then I read in Hurley and Dobson that my soul is my business too. So let me just say I think Hurley and Dobson are the unsung heroes of the Enneagram. They did some very significant work in the 70s that for some reason was kind of overlooked by most of the folks who were doing a lot of Enneagram teaching. If your soul is going to grow, then you and I have to accept responsibility to develop it. And going to Sunday school and church doesn't develop it. Singing in the church choir doesn't develop it. Being on a church committee doesn't develop it. Starting a home church doesn't develop it. None of those things are a guarantee that there's any soul growth. And therefore, there's a part of you generally that isn't taking responsibility for growing. Um, for about six years, maybe I ended that maybe five years ago, I worked with veterans. But when I was asked over and over and over to work with veterans, I finally thought, well, that must be the Holy Spirit. So I think we have to stop for just a second and look at how does God call you and how do you hear God. And if you need some help with that, then there's a an author whose name is Greg Lavoie, and he wrote a book titled Callings, and it's by far one of the best books about discernment that I've ever read. And what I learned from reading Greg Lavoie was to recognize that the Holy Spirit calls me in all kinds of ways and in all kinds of places, but if I'm not doing my work, if I'm not growing my soul, Then I don't hear it because I don't recognize it. In the mid seventies, Richard Foster, who's still teaching and still doing really great work, but in the mid seventies, Foster said, the new tools of the devil are muchness and manyness and noise and crowds and hurry. Now that was in the mid seventies. So I, what, where do you think we might be now? Right? In a lot of trouble, a lot of it having to do with technology and All that goes with that. So when I finally discerned that God was calling me to work with veterans through veterans' families across the country asking me to, I realized that I would have to put together a think tank because I don't know anything about war. And I didn't want to know anything about war and soldiering. I um, graduated from high school in 1969, and I lost a lot of friends in Vietnam and I just didn't want to know anything about war, so I put all my energy into the civil rights movement in the 60s and 70s. So I pulled together a think tank that met here with me, and they told me what movies to watch and what books to read and what authors to look for and what articles to gather. And one of the most helpful was a man whose name is Dr. Uh, Edward Tick, and he wrote a book titled War in the Soul. And that's not particularly important, but what is important is that he he talks about how when he only works back east and only with Vietnam veterans still, I think, but what he tells is that one of his first questions in an early interview with a soldier who came to him for help was, um, so how's your soul? And early on, one of those soldiers said, my soul? I wouldn't have any idea. My soul's over there because I was required to do things that my soul couldn't participate in and maybe couldn't bear witness to. So what I learned from that is that trauma has a different effect on us than uh, just getting through life without making very many mistakes, more than we all make all the time. But also it it um, was further verification for me in my work that trauma absolutely doesn't cause your Enneagram number to change. So a lot of people come to me and say, like, I, I know you say you can't be two numbers, but I was this number before trauma and I'm this number after trauma. And respectfully, that's just not true. You are the same number your whole life. And that number, and and when coupled with trauma, just means that you live out of excess in your personality from trauma on. And you have to work harder to get up here into average space and to be able to stay here because of trauma. An underdeveloped soul can't protect us from automatically reacting to the cares and anxieties of life. And when we automatically react to the cares and anxieties of life, we do it from excess in our number. And everything in the culture is encouraging that. So we have to learn to, to listen for that and to hear it. And the second reality is that's equally important is nobody loves you for your essence. We love and appreciate one another for personality. So that means if you're a two, we love you if you're always helpful. And if you're a seven, we love you if you're always fun and lighthearted. And if you're an eight, we love you because you always take charge. And if you're a nine, we love you because you don't have to have things your way. And on and on that goes. I do not think growing your soul has anything to do with salvation. So please don't hear that. Growing your soul helps you experience freedom that your personality has the potential to keep you from experiencing. The Enneagram is not a solution. It's a process. It's a living, breathing, non-static process. And it offers so much, but not everything by any means. Because of the success of the books and because of my work, I guess, in different cities, I uh, have been asked to do lots of magazine interviews and lots of podcasts and lots of radio interviews. And there's only one question that's consistent. And it's always kind of sounds like this. What's dangerous about the Enneagram? <laughs> and I heard it so much I thought, you know, I, I better have a response to that that's like has some integrity. So I thought about it for a long time and I know what's dangerous about the Enneagram. And it is that you take it to be more than it is. It's great, but it's just one spiritual wisdom tool. And by itself, I, I don't, I'm not sure exactly what it would have to offer. It's always been referred to as wisdom and it's always been referred to as one of many wisdoms. So here's what happens, I think. Um, what it does offer is it helps us deal with ourselves, so we'll have a new way of dealing with questions and problems. But once you're rational, you cannot deal with paradox. And paradox includes almost all of the important questions in life and almost all of the important problems. And the reason paradox is not rational is because Every single thing contains its opposite. Everything you can think of contains its opposite. So if we look at one of Carl Jung's strongest teachings as far as I'm concerned, which is all of the greatest and most important questions and problems of life are unsolvable. They can't be solved, only outgrown. So then the question is, how are we going to outgrow them? Like if we got this far and couldn't solve them and they can't be solved, then how are we going to outgrow them? And the only way that I can imagine is with soul work. And that always, always, always is going to include spiritual practices. So your ego prefers the dualistic mind, your either or mind. And your soul embraces things without needing to label them good or bad, up or down, I like it or I don't. Duality, dualism, doesn't get you anywhere spiritually. So, again, quoting Jung, the Enneagram shows you where you fall over and over and over. And Jung says, wherever you fall, it's there that you find true gold. So I don't know what tradition you come from, and I certainly don't want to offend you in any way. But I do have to say that our culture through the prosperity gospel has been teaching for about 30 years that there's no need to fall. And that's not true. And in Christian context, it's for sure not true because the one pattern we have, the one pattern we have, is living, dying, and rising. And that includes falling. Perhaps the Enneagram, when taught well and when well understood, can reveal the relationship between your soul and your personality. And by now, that's your work. A combination of true personality and soul work and false personality. And it's all always going to be there.
1: I just want to say, we have to have personality. That's how we make our way in the world. But what happens is we keep adding and adding and adding on to the personality. So the great gift of spiritual work, the great gift of spiritual practices and spiritual disciplines is allowing us to let some of that personality, particularly the false self begin to fall away little by little by little. So we, develop this spiritual life when we're young. And usually we tend to, yeah. depending on our denomination, depending on on our families and our backgrounds, we usually form an idea or a concept of, of spiritual life and God and how we're supposed to operate that's so sort of like in a box right here in front of us. And as we allow that to fall away, as we grow our soul then we expand our horizons more and more and more. And so real spiritual growth happens when we expand more and more and more our spiritual horizons so that if God works out here, we can take it in. And if God works way out here on the other side, we can take it in. Otherwise, we, we tend to think God can only work in this box right here in front of us. And so that spiritual formation, that spiritual growth work is the growth of practicing spiritual disciplines because it's in the practice of those that we allow those parts of our personality to begin to fall away. Suzanne mentioned centering prayer. It is by far the most essential because if we're going to say transformation happens when something falls away, usually at God's doing and not our own, that's when God really does do the work within us. And all we have to do is show up and be. We don't have to think. We don't have to do. We don't have to feel. We just have to show up and be in the presence of the holy. And then God will do the work within us. And little by little, that starts to fall away. For those of you who are spiritual directors or pastors, I think what we have to come to understand is is what is expected of people when they come to us in spiritual direction is that they bring their real self before god and your real self is this combination of your true self and your false self that's that's what makes us up your true self who you were created by god to be before you did anything wrong or anything right that's your true self it's your essence and we all share in that essence of being loved by god before we did anything wrong or anything right That's your true self. And there's nothing you can do to get God to love you more. And there's nothing you can do to get God to love you less. Okay. But then on top of that, we put false self. We start to build personality. And when we build personality, yes, we do things that are offensive. We do things that God would prefer we not do. It doesn't change God's love for us. It doesn't change God's care for us. But that's part of what we do with personality. So what we bring to spiritual direction is this combination of the true, the true self and the false self. And then those of us who are pastors or spiritual directors, our role then is to bring the real God of history before the person who comes to us in spiritual direction. And then those two meet and the journey continues. Everybody's journey is going to be a little different because you're unique. Each one of us comes with unique gifts and graces and talents that make us distinctively unique from one another. And our personalities are then going to be unique as well. So Those are the parts that we begin to let go little by little by little. Let them fall away. We allow them to fall away.
2: All right, here we go. So we're going to do, do a little review. Uh, 1940s. An Enneagram 8 named George Gurdjieff is in Europe. And he started a house where people come and do different spiritual practices. And they learn from one another and they do these practices together. And two of the men who came to that school were Claudio Naranjo and Oscar Echazo. And they returned to South America, and then Naranjo in the 1970s went to California to do some teaching. But other things occurred between the 40s and the 70s, and I want to share with you what was going on. Along with Gurdjieff in Europe in the 40s doing his uh, spiritual practices in his spiritual school, There was a man in England who, as far as we can tell, didn't really do anything with the Enneagram, and his name was Maurice Cole, and said in a paper that he published, there are three centers of intelligence, and they are thinking and feeling and doing. And his point was that we all respond to life first with either what do I think, what do I feel, or what am I going to do? When somebody took Maurice Nicole's work and laid it on top of the enneagram, then what they found out is twos, threes, and fours respond first with what do I feel, and fives, sixes, and sevens first with what do I think, and eights, nines, and ones first with what am I going to do. Those were named triads, and at the same time, there was a woman whose name is Karen Horneye. And Karen Hornei said, we all respond to people in one of three ways. We either move toward people, or we move away from people, or we move against people. And they took Karen Hornei's work and put it on top of Maurice Nicole's work, and what they found was that in each triad, there was one person who moved toward, one number who moved against, and one number who moved away from. Those kinds of things don't happen unless there are systems overlapping that can run concurrently and are true. And since the 1970s, we've been working with that information and nobody is saying that that's not correct. Nobody's run up against situations where that just doesn't fit. So triads are determined by which is dominant, thinking, feeling, or doing. But stances are determined by which is repressed, thinking, feeling, or doing. And the important thing about that, that if you don't know what's repressed, then you're not aware that you're doing life with two of three centers and that's why you're tired. When we do life with two of three centers, then what ultimately happens is those two centers start to uh, trigger each other. So we're doing life with two of three centers of intelligence that are triggering one another and working probably at their lowest focus and function when we could be using all three centers to grow our souls. The Enneagram is deceptively simple and it's deceptively deep. And every day the reality is that we use these three centers, what do I think, what do I feel, what am I going to do, To make our way in the world. And when that's focused outward, the name we've given that is personality. But there's another experience of these three centers. And when that occurs, you know something different has happened. You know it isn't ordinary. It's deeper and it's more real. And that's when the three centers are focused inward and it's an experience of the soul. Sadly, Sometimes we don't know how to name what happens when they're focused inward and we have an experience of the soul because we don't recognize it as our soul. And when we dismiss it, we lose ground because nobody's named it for us. Essentially here, we're all about soul work. I know lots of people for whom life is pretty disappointing. I have heard so many stories in so many cities that I now have a ritual that I do in hotels before I leave to come home so that I can leave those stories there because I just couldn't carry them. And I think one of the reasons life is so disappointing for some people is because of connecting with the culture or the world more than they connect with their souls. And too many of our experiences are less than they could be. We're so controlling And we're so set in our way and we don't allow and we for sure don't want to surrender. All of those things are personality and not soul. I was just teaching at Fetzer Institute and Parker Palmer did a lot of work at Fetzer over a 10-year period. And one of the things that they still uh, have available for people uh is let your life speak by parker so first of all for those of you who haven't read him i highly recommend it secondly he's a self-identified 3 on the enneagram so that's a very big thing in terms of understanding his work he is a 3 who suffers with clinical depression so there's a lot of four sounding things in his work but um if it i called him and said i i don't I can't tell if you're a three or a four and I'm wanting to do some work around your teaching. And he said, well, go to such and such book and look on such and such page and you'll know the answer. And I did all that. And on that page, it said, um, and I did those things because I wanted my picture in the paper. And I said, okay, he's three. (laughs) But one of the things that happens in the reality of us looking at work like Parker Palmer has done, is that he suggested with his Circles of Trust that there is a way for us to help each other with serious discernment about what we're going to do with our lives. And his name for that is Circles of Trust, and there's a lot of rules around that. Uh, You ask somebody to put together a circle for you, and then you send a written page of what you're trying to discern. And then those people meet with you, And nobody can make statements. They can only ask questions. And they can never bring up what was discussed outside the circle unless you do. And they can take notes, but they have to turn them into you before they're done. They can only ask honest questions, which cannot be answered with yes or no. And it has to be a question you don't already know the answer to. So with all of that reality going on with circles of trust, we decided here that we would train people to be in circles of trust so that people could call the MICA Center or contact us and say, I have a thing I need to discern, and I need some help with that. Trained all those people, put out the word, not one person took us up on it. Now, here's why that's important. Because most of us, most of the time, don't want to discern what is ours to do or what God would have us do. Instead, we're looking for support for what we've already decided we want to do. That is out of control, control, right? And it means that the path you take, you're in charge of by yourself. And I would just suggest that you might want to give that some thought. Like in your most honest moments, do you really want to make all your decisions for yourself without input from anybody who's going to challenge you or who's going to stretch you a little bit? And to be honest, some days my answer to that question is, yes, I do. And other days it's, no, I think I'll go ahead and surrender to something else. So you have to know what to do with what you know about your number. Focused outward, your personality helps us with what we need to make our way in the world. Focused inward, The same three intelligences have a very different purpose. So Gurdjieff, who I just talked with you about, uh, was born in 1866 and died in 1949. And remember, he's credited with the revival of the Enneagram. And Carl Jung, who I'm quite sure that you're aware of, was born in 1875 and he died in 1961. And they were contemporaries in the last quarter of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century. And they were both very concerned about soul work. And they said, the pace of our lives in Western culture, along with our exterior focus, will potentially lead us to a place where we can lose touch with the soul and the values of the soul. I'm going to let you hear that again. We have the potential with the pace of our lives in Western culture, along with our exterior focus, that will lead us to a place where we can lose touch with the soul and the values of the soul. Then, 1942, and he's still alive, Richard Foster started talking about muchness and manyness and noise and crowds and hurry. And there is reality about the fact that we're all wounded in childhood. So I go lots of places now where more than half the people in the room are under 40, which is very exciting. Mm-hmm. But what I'm learning is that a lot of those young couples raise their hand and say, uh, so we're here so we can learn to be really healthy so we don't mess up our kids. <laughs> to which I say, well, you need another reason. Because you're going to mess up your kids. Like that's part of the deal. We all do it. It was done to us, and we pass it on. It's a, it's a thing, right? So we got Nicole, who's teaching with everything that what matters is that you know what you feel and what you think and what you're going to do. And Hurley and Donson then came along and said that when you're trapped in that, false personality essentially causes your soul to fall asleep. So false self causes your soul to fall asleep, and trauma causes your soul to step aside. Those are two different things. Now, I would guess that you have theological questions about all of that, and we have a local resident theologian who can explain it to you in many fewer words than I can. So if you have questions for Q&A, that's where we'll clear anything up that you don't understand about that. So if you take all that into account, then spiritual transformation is the journey from personality or false self to the truly human responsiveness of the soul or true self. Now, the reason this is important, and I keep revisiting the layer on top of the layer with you, is because that matters. So, young Gurjeev Merton others have stated that in one way or another, when we were created, our soul was balanced but underdeveloped balanced meaning in thinking, feeling, and doing. And that doesn't mean a third, a third, a third. What it does mean is that you use the thinking part, intelligence, for things that require thinking and the doing intelligence for doing and the feeling intelligence for feeling. Maurice Nicole then added that with those three intelligences, present and balanced, each one of us was wounded. And the wound is inevitable because of limitations. Every need cannot be met. It just can't happen. So life is a process of wounding and loss and healing and growth. And due to the wounding, we learn to use the centers in an imbalanced way. Henry Nouwen, self-identified two on the Enneagram, said, The great tragedy of human love is that it always wounds. Why is this so? simply because human love is imperfect, always tainted by needs and unfulfilled desires. So here's where you start writing stuff down. We have a structured and organized way of using the three centers. Thinking is for gathering and sorting information and analyzing and making plans. Thinking is for gathering and sorting information and analyzing, and making plans. Feeling. It's in this center that we acknowledge feelings, ours and other people's. And it's also in this center where we're aware of needs and agendas, ours and other people's. So I'm going to say it again. In this center, feeling, we acknowledge feelings, ours and other people's. And We're aware of needs and agendas, ours and other people's. The doing center is for accomplishing and pleasure-seeking. Now, because of genetic predisposition, which is how we get our Enneagram number, combined with environment and wounding, we began to use one intelligence to navigate. Just one. And that one intelligence was repeatedly wounded. So it naturally withdrew, kind of back here, to a place where it was protected, but not growing and not developing. So I want to give you an example of that. Looking back at my childhood, it seems clear to me that using Enneagram wisdom, I used to lead with thinking. My parents were older when they adopted me. Um, they, I'm from a small farming community and ranching community in the Panhandle. And there were 5,000 people in my community when I was growing up. And everybody knew my family and my dad because my dad was the town doc. In that town, there was no, uh, entertainment. So, People socially divided into generations and then they hosted one another in their homes and did things together. to They played bridge and they played cards and all kinds of stuff. And that was their social life, essentially. Well, my parents' generation, all their children, along with my two brothers who were 18 and 15 when I was born, they're all gone. And I'm the only child two times or three times a week in an all-adult world. If you're the only child in an all-adult world and you lead with thinking, nobody cares what you think. That's not interesting to anybody. So thinking wasn't getting me anywhere, and it just kind of moved back here. But I could make my way with feeling and doing and feeling and doing and feeling and doing. And so because that worked for me, I just continued to make my way with feeling and doing. You have a similar story around your repressed center. You don't need to know what it is today. You probably don't ever need to know what it is. But if it comes, then you'll know, and you can tip your hat to that. And if not, don't worry about it. The important thing is that you know that between the ages of 8 and 11, you stop using one of the three centers. And it just waits back here for you until you come get it. Now, this is one of the places where I think Enneagram wisdom is literally astonishing. It's the only thing I know of, of all the systems that we've been exposed to, that teaches you what it is and how to go get it. So if you had told me anywhere along the line before I learned the Enneagram that I was thinking repressed, I would have said, you're crazy. I think all the time. So I'm going to walk through this with every number later, but let me just tell you right now: Twos, you also, I know, believe that you think all the time, and that's because you do about relationships. If you watch yourself, 80 to 85 to 87 <laughs> percent, just to put a point on it, and, and be respectful of Enneagram Fives. The the reality is that you. Uh, spend most of your thinking thinking about relationships, which is fine, except there are a lot of other things to think about that require good, productive thinking for you to do well in life. The imbalance, then, happens on two levels. Um, in Enneagram language, taking in information from the culture it, or from the world is referred to as interpreting information. That's not the word I would choose, but we're going to stick with that because it's, you know, 3,000 years old. I've already messed with it a little. I don't think I need to mess with it here. But the reason I don't like interpreting is because the next level is processing. And those two words seem a lot alike to me. So I'm going to say we take in or interpret information from the environment depending on our triad. So you either take it in with thinking or feeling or doing. And then you make sense of or process the information that you've taken in with one of the other two centers, depending on whether or not you move toward people, away from people, or against people. I'm going to go through every number. I'm going to lay it all out for you. So don't, don't fret. We have the imbalance of taking in information with only one center, then we have added imbalance with making sense of the information we've taken in with only two centers. So we've left out one. So here we go. Gonna follow through with me again. The centers become unequal. One center moves forward to interpret the information that's received through our senses. Then, based on behavior, the people around us begin to expect us to behave in a certain way. And so we behave in that way in order to get our needs met. And then we bring forth the center that will get the desired results until it doesn't. Triads. Preferred center. And here's what five sixes and 7s value. They have preferred thinking, so they value information and knowledge and logic, and patterns, and analysis. Say it again. They prefer thinking, and they value information, knowledge, logic, patterns, and analysis. Twos, threes, and fours have preferred feeling, and they value emotion, relationships, feelings, and interpersonal dynamics. Emotions, relationships, feelings, and interpersonal dynamics. Preferred doing. 891. They value action and vitality and determination and protecting their safety. Action, vitality, determination, and protecting their safety. Now, remember, the preferred center sees only one-third of what's happening, and it tends to treat as unimportant the other two-thirds. So then you can see how all of this becomes mechanical and habitual. Okay, three sixes and nines. Let's talk about your uh, specialness. Three, six, nine are the numbers on the center triangle of the Enneagram. So what happens because you're the core numbers is you are both dominant and repressed in the same number. And what that means is you take in information with your dominant center, but you don't use your dominant center to help make sense of the information you take in. So threes take in information with feelings, but then they don't use feelings to decide what to do with the information that they've gathered. Sixes take in information with thinking, but then they don't use productive thinking to make sense of and decide what to do about the information they've taken in. And nines take in information with doing, but then they don't use doing to determine what they're going to do in response to the information they've taken in. So I'm going to give you a story example so you can hang your hat on that. If you've read uh, The Path Between Us, the opening story in the book is about Joe. And we were on a plane uh, coming back from New York, and anytime you're traveling from New York to Dallas, there's always a lot of cultural difference on the plane, uh, particularly coming out of LaGuardia. And I fly a lot, and I'm uh, other-referenced, and I'm relational. So I know pretty much how many seats are left where by the end of a boarding time. I uh, watch people walk on the plane, and I think, yeah, that bag isn't going with us because it's too big, and I know there's no overhead bin space. I got all the lingo down. The thing I still can't do is the thing where they point at just the right time. I... <laughs> Like, I kind of even know what's happening, but this thing, I don't know how they figured that out. So Joe and I are uh, uh, about maybe row 15 on the plane, and there uh, is an older couple. So think about what that might mean if it's Joe and I observing and I'm saying it's an older couple. So there's an older couple coming down the aisle, and she's following really close behind him, and he has a suitcase carrying it in front of him, that has a band around it, and he's just carrying it. And I'm aware that there are no two seats together left and that they don't speak English. So Joe's fully bilingual in English and Spanish. So I start punching Joe because I'm taking in information with feelings, right? You need to help them. He says, they'd do fine if I wasn't on this flight. And I say, you are on this flight. She's scared. They're not going to get to sit together. And they don't speak English. And you speak Spanish. Help them. They'll work it out. So then some jerk whose Spanish is equal to mine starts helping. So he knows how to say, like he's saying words like taco and cerveza and baño. And I'm looking at Joe saying, I could have done that it's disrespectful and they don't speak english you need to help so finally they figure it out somebody gets up and moves so they can sit together and uh we're not good <laughs> <laughs> so
1: <long> home.
2: <laughs> so we get home and we're tired and we don't visit the experience till the next day and if you've never heard me introduce Joe, which I always do, whether he's with me or not when I'm on the road, he's the finest human being I know. No exception, the finest person I know. He's good all the way through. He's gracious and generous, and he's no fun to gossip with or bitch with or gripe with. I have to have friends for that. He's, just, he's good all the way through. So I said to him, You know how I feel about you and how I feel about the goodness that is you. I don't have any understanding why you wouldn't help those people. So I need you to explain that to me. And he said, okay. Honestly, when I see something like that happening, I know that somebody needs to do something, but it doesn't occur to me that it should be me. And I said, that's why God gave you me. (laughs) So the important teaching for you in that is that Joe sat right by me and saw the same thing I saw and thought the same thing I thought, which was somebody should help them. But because he's a nine, he takes in information with what needs to be done, but he doesn't process it with what needs to be done, so it doesn't occur to him to do it. So maybe, eh, I don't know how much later, yeah. year and a half later, Joel and Joe and I are on a flight. So we're in Charlotte. We're getting on a small plane. We're on, and the row in front of us is the exit row. And the guy uh, who's by the exit doesn't speak English. And the flight attendant is saying over and over and over to him, if you don't speak English, you can't sit here. Well, you know what we all do when people don't speak our language is talk louder. So she's saying, you can't sit here. <laughs> He's looking at her, all confused. And I'm thinking, I'm not, I'm not going to say a word. So I'm just observing. And Joe Stabile sure does stand up, crawl over me, go translate. The guy's so thankful. He moves. Somebody else moves. Everybody's happy. And Joe sits back down. And just when I'm about to congratulate him, everybody else around us congratulates him, patting him on the back and telling him how great it is and how great he is and all that, to which I'm thinking. I you. So here's the reason for the story. Once you know your behavior... And once you understand how you are in the world, it's your responsibility to do it differently. Right? So I want you, we always want people who are here where we've limited the number of people in the room. We always want people here to walk out wearing what we teach you, not carrying out in a notebook. Um, I was teaching in a town in the South that I'll not mention. And, um, The people who picked me up, I had been there like 10 months before. And the women are in the front seat driving me and telling me how much they love my work and all that. And I drop something on the floorboard, and I bend over to pick it up, and it's kind of hooked under something, and I pull it out, and it's the folder of notes that I gave 10 months before when I was there under the floor mat in the back seat, which is a little offensive, but what, what I learned from that is, okay, I don't want you to carry it out. I want you to wear it out. Like that, that's the point of a one day workshop. So you can wear it out. Now, if you come to an intensive, you might have to take some and wear some, carry some in your pocket, maybe. So everybody clear on three, six, nine, you understand now how that happens. I'll tidy up the other numbers when I get there. All right. So follow again. First, we interpret information through the preferred center, which is our triad. Second, after we've interpreted the information, we have to process it. We have to give it meaning. And that processing is the second way that we create imbalance because the goal is to process with all three centers. So because of wounding, the wounded centers in the background, and that's called your repressed center. That doesn't mean it disappeared. It just means it's sort of unconscious. But along with being unconscious, it's also not been abused by being out in the world and misunderstood and developing your repressed center is lifelong any REM work. And frankly, I think this is the sweet spot of the Enneagram right here. I think it will help you more than any other Enneagram practice that you can add to whatever else you do. Because if you're not creating life in a balanced way, you're never going to be taking in all that's available and you're going to be focused and functioning at the lowest possible level of the three centers of intelligence. But while it's your lifelong work, it's the center that you use the least well. So you're not going to want to do it. Reality is then that the repressed center will show itself to you first in your private life. Because you kind of have to get it all together to go to work, right? But in your private life, you can watch yourself. And you'll figure out what your repressed center is and how it acts if you're courageous enough to watch yourself. When the two centers are doing the work of three, one is moved back to protect itself, one's taken the lead, and the third one supports the lead. So we end up, I've said this is third time because it's so hard to really see the seriousness of this. We end up doing life with two of three centers of intelligence. It's why we behave badly. It's why we have so much trouble in relationships. It's why we uh, use the Enneagram as an excuse for behavior. And it causes great weariness. And even more importantly, because you're using two of the three and because you're weary from using two of the three, only a few of the values of the two are being used for your benefit because they're too stretched and they're overused. So soon, the top two, lead and support, Become triggers for each other and once that happens then our behavior is habitual meaning it's reactive rather than active and then your responses become fairly predictable and so even if they're not predictable for you they are predictable from the perspective of the people who know you well these three centers are the soul's natural resources it's what you have to work with to live a more peaceful and meaningful life, both focused outward and focused inward. And when balanced, they point outwardly connecting the world, with the world in productive and proper ways, each center acting independently and appropriately. So I'm going to give you an example of that. If you're a two on the Enneagram like I am and you have a tendency to do life with feeling and doing and feeling and doing, and you're thinking repressed, but you're so relational by nature that you spend most of your time thinking about relationships, then if you don't do this work, two or three things happen pretty much guaranteed. One is you give energy to other people and it's taking it from the people who matter the most to you. So Joe and I, are both social folks, and we know lots and lots and lots of people. And we are now living our lives with almost no social engagements because we both have big jobs that we didn't expect to have. Joe's 71, and I'm 68, and we have 19 humans in our immediate family, and they all live right here. So if we think then the question is, who do you want to give yourself to? And for us, it's each other and our jobs, our our vocations, and those 19 people. And it doesn't mean that we don't enjoy other people or that we wouldn't enjoy a, a more robust social life like we had before. It just means there's not room for that. But if I don't bring up thinking... And if Joe doesn't bring up doing, we don't know that there's not room for that. And so we just keep adding and adding and adding and adding and adding. And then people go from adding and adding and adding to stopping and stopping and stopping. And there's no process to that. It's a reaction instead of an action. So literally, we got an invitation from a young, we're trying to give ourselves to young anti folk and young clergy, when they invite us. And we got an invitation from a young clergyman in our conference and his wife, who's also clergy. And they said, we want you to come to dinner anytime. And our opportunity was 91 days out. And they said, great. Now, that's a reality that our culture misunderstands as popularity. But really, it's a reality that has to do with how you're living your priorities. And if you haven't named your priorities, you're going to need a spiritual director to help you with that, because if not, you're going to justify doing things the way you want to do them. So I think as you eat your barbecue today and you prepare yourself for Joe this afternoon, be aware that what he's going to propose If you do it, it's a game changer. It's going to change how you respond. It's going to put you more in touch with your essence and less in touch with your personality. But none of your friends are going to be excited about that. You're not going to get little notes. Congratulations on working on your essence. It's so good for our relationship. That's not coming. All right. Quinn. The centers are acting in the